Matthew has a a very distinctive message that he wants to convey. Um, There's obviously a lot of overlap between him and the other gospel writers. We're talking about the same person, the person of Jesus. But there are certain distinctives in Matthew's gospel that you don't really, uh, that don't really shine forth in the other gospels. So let me just give you three reasons. Uh, Everything's got three reasons these days. Let me give you three reasons why we should study this gospel and what I think we will get from it together as we look at this as a church. Firstly, Matthew will help us understand what it means to call Jesus king and to be part of his kingdom. Uh, that was a, it was a great song, that last one that we just sung. Uh, we had a lot of kingy songs, and that's because this idea of kingship, this aspect of, of Jesus' character as being the great king of kings and Lord of lords is an aspect that Matthew really hones in on more than any other gospel writer. And I think that will be tremendously helpful for us because we are often in the danger of treating Jesus more like he's my buddy or my assistant rather than understanding what it means to call him our king and what it looks like to be part of his kingdom. Secondly, Matthew is a great gospel for helping us understand the Old Testament. Uh, So Matthew uh, uses the language of fulfillment a lot. He talks a lot about Old Testament scriptures and how they were fulfilled ultimately at the arrival of Jesus Christ. This this gospel is great for showing us how this 3,000-year plan of salvation uh, was ultimately fulfilled in the King Jesus. Thirdly and finally, Matthew um, puts a large emphasis on the entire world coming to be disciples of Jesus. So at the very end of this gospel, after his resurrection, Jesus gathers his disciples to himself, which would have included Matthew, the author of this gospel, and he sends them out to go and make disciples of all nations. It's what is commonly known as the Great Commission. Jesus sends them out to teach the world what he taught them. And in many ways, the gospel of Matthew that he writes is part of the fulfillment of that commission. And you see that in the way that Matthew structures his gospel. What he does more than any other gospel writer is focus primarily on the teachings of Jesus. In fact, he structures his entire gospel around five big teaching blocks in Jesus' ministry, and he skillfully links it all together with the narrative accounts of Jesus' life, his death, and his uh, resurrection. It's a very didactic gospel. And if you want to see a kind of outline of that structure, then you can read it in uh, the Connect article that should be appearing this month. So this is a great gospel for showing us what it means to be a disciple and for motivating us to go and make disciples of all nations. By the way, uh, this may not seem, after I've kind of built it up, this may not seem like the most thrilling introduction to a book, um, but trust me, uh, this is wonderfully encouraging and tremendously important. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron 
and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Uh, so there you go. Um, that was a, uh, an intimidating passage to look at at the start of this week. It is important. It is very helpful. Let me pray, though, because we need God's help to understand this. Father, thank you for your word. All of it is true. All of it is useful. Uh, and Father, this is a, a great and encouraging genealogy that we see here at the start of this gospel. Father, we need your help to understand, not just because it's complex, but we need you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to see the truth of who Jesus is. And ultimately, that is our prayer this evening. We would see Jesus, and may we see him, may we know him better, and may we marvel at who he is. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So as we approach this, beginning of Matthew's Gospel, as we approach this genealogy, um, there are two big questions that um, I was thinking about that I think are very important to ask. Firstly, why is it so important for Matthew to begin his Gospel with a genealogy? And secondly, what can we learn from this today? So you can see on your service sheet, I've got an outline um, that seeks to deal with those two questions. And the first big question I want to, to think about is, why did Matthew begin his gospel with a genealogy? Why is this genealogy so important? Uh, and the answer that I've given, and I want to show you from what we see here, is this. The genealogy of Jesus authenticates his identity as God's promised king for all the world. So the genealogy of Jesus, it authenticates his identity as God's promised king for all the world. Matthew begins this way because he is determined to show his readers that when he talks about Jesus, he is talking about the real deal, a fulfillment of promises that were made long ago. And, and for Matthew's original readers, which most likely would have been first century Jews, um, genealogies were actually quite exciting. 
And they were very important ways of determining uh, who you were and where you came from. Your, your her- heritage and your lineage really mattered. It's kind of like if you've ever seen the film Lord of the Rings. That's the first Lord of the Rings illustration of 2017, one of many more to come. Um, uh, by the way, Tolkien is just a gold mine for uh, sermon illustrations. Anyway, if you've read the books or seen the films and you'll know that one of the big heroes in the story is this exiled ranger, this outcast called Aragorn, who is in actual fact this great king that has come to save Middle-earth. And the way that he is authenticated in the film and throughout the story is that people come to realize who he's descended from, that he is part of this long lineage of kings. His ancestry is proof that he is the real deal. And that's what's happening here in Matthew's gospel. That's what Matthew is trying to show us. This genealogy is showing us that Jesus is the real deal. It it places Jesus in history. See, Matthew doesn't begin his gospel by saying, once upon a time or uh, uh, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Jesus is a real person. Not someone Matthew made up. He's not some idea to follow. He's not uh, some philosophical way of thinking, but he was real flesh and blood. But this genealogy doesn't just authenticate Jesus as a historical figure. It authenticates him as the fulfillment of God's great promise to send a king that will save the world. How do we see that? Well, verse 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you were familiar with this first chunk of your Bible, which the original readers of Matthew's gospel would have been, those are two of the most important names in the Old Testament. And they are so important because those are individuals that God spoke to directly and gave a promise And these promises that God gave these individuals are all throughout the Bible. So important to understand in the Bible. So let's have a look at them. We're going to need some nimble fingers. Uh, We'll do some turning. Uh, Let's go to um, Genesis chapter 12. We're going to go back in time now from when Jesus was born. 3,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 12. This is the, the first of those big names, Abraham. And this is part of uh, a promise that God gave to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, let me read from verse 2. God says to Abraham, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families, or all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed. So Abraham is given a promise by God 3,000 years before Christ. He is given a promise that from him will come this great nation, a nation that will be used to bless all the nations of the earth. And this promise is everywhere in the Old Testament. It's absolutely everywhere. And as we read on, As you journey through Israel's history, as it unfolds, we begin to see that that promise of blessing to all the nations starts to get tied down to one single figure, God's king. 
So 2,000 years or so after Abraham, 1,000 years before Christ, God made another promise. And this time it was to the great King David. So turn forward in your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the promise that God gave to King David. Let's read from uh, verse 12. This is what God says to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the promise of God given to Abraham was that his descendant would bless the nations. The promise of God given to David is that his descendant would rule forever as God's eternal king. And Matthew's saying in one verse in his gospel that that's been fulfilled. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the descendant of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the king to bless all the nations. The king that was promised so long ago. The king who who everyone was waiting for over 3,000 years of Israel's history has finally arrived. That's why Matthew begins this way. He's, He's trying to show us that he is the rightful and final heir of it all. The king that will bless all the nations. And the way that Matthew structures his genealogy, you'll have noticed there in verse 17 that for him a big deal about this is that it's split into 14 uh, sections, so three generations of 14. Uh, he's actually deliberately missed out some names. If you were to study this genealogy, you would see that, that he's missed out some names there. But we shouldn't be too worried about that. It would have been very obvious to him and obvious to his original readers that what he is saying in verse 17, what he is doing, rather than making a statistical point, is making a theological point. You see, in putting it like this, he is saying that those three periods of Israel's history are now over. And now that they are over, the promise is here. That time of preparation on those three chunks of Israel's history is complete, and the time of fulfillment is here. Jesus, the King, to bless all the nations. It's the big theme, it's the big aim of Matthew's gospel. So turn one more, turn to the very end of Matthew, the very end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28, this is after his resurrection. This is what I was saying at the start is commonly known as the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18. This is the big theme we see at the beginning and at the end. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me. That's king language. King, the son of David. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. The one to bless all nations. The son of Abraham. So Matthew's gospel is framed by the idea that Jesus is the king to bless all nations. Everything that we're going to study in between all that is Matthew trying to show us what that means, trying to convince us how that is true, and trying to show us what it means for us to call Jesus that king. But back in Matthew 1, come back to this genealogy now. Back in Matthew 1, Matthew chapter 1, there's more going on in this genealogy. What do we learn from this 
list of names. How, how is this going to help us today? Well, there's two big lessons, I think, that we learn. And actually, I think they're lessons that I've not inferred from this. I think they're lessons that, that Matthew himself is trying to teach us. First big lesson, there is nothing that can ever hinder God's promise. There is nothing that can ever hinder God's promise. Let's just look at these periods of history that Matthew records. Verse 2 to 6, we've got the generations between Abraham and the great King David. Now, the period of history in between that time was messed up. It was a messed up history. This period included the moment when Israel was subjected to slavery by Egypt. For 400 years, they were slaves. And not only that, they were part of a mass genocide in which the, uh, the very wicked Pharaoh sought to kill all their infant children. Uh, and God rescued them through Moses. It's the, the very famous story of the Exodus. In fact, uh, this guy here in verse 4, Ram and Aminadab were part of that, part of that Exodus that happened. Uh, this period of history also includes the time of the judges when Israel was eventually rescued from slavery and they settled in the land of Egypt and they were ruled by figures that were called judges. For the most part, these judges were horrible. And for, when you read the book of Judges in the Bible, you can see that Israel, God's people, did some of the most abominable things that it's actually, when you read it, you, you, you think, can I, I can't keep reading this. It's so horrible what is happening here. Verse 7 to 11, the, the second block, uh, records for us the generations of the kings, which started off well under King David and Solomon. Well, it wasn't perfect. David, he slept with another man's wife and had him killed. Something that's alluded to there in verse 6. Notice how Matthew phrases that was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's the man that David had killed. And Solomon started off well, but went completely off the rails. And then what followed was this period of history, which was probably one of the darkest moments in Israel's history. You can read about it in the book of 1 and 2 Kings in the Old Testament. They were ruled by kings who were, for the most part, again, wicked, evil people. And that period of history ended with their land being destroyed, the temple in ruins, the people being exiled off to Babylon, and the king being killed. That's that period of history. The third one endured through, though. The people endured. In verses 12 to 16, we have the, the kind of third block. And Matthew records for us the generations of those who came back from that exile, that small remnant that were still left. And we're kind of studying that period of history this these mornings uh, on Sundays, we look at the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and that was the time where they rebuilt the temple, but it was rubbish. And the, the, God's promises still seemed to be there, but they weren't quite being fulfilled. And actually, in that period from when they came back to when Jesus arrived, the nation of Israel was subjected to the most barbaric empires on the face of the earth. I mean, this is messy, messy, messy history. And what's striking about this list of names is not the names that Matthew leaves out, but the ones that he includes. I mean, there's some people on here you would not want in your genealogy. It would be like if I went on, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? And they trace kind of genealogies and, um, and usually 
you know, it's not that exciting. Um, though apparently, I think there was one recently with Danny Dyer where he was like related to royalty. So uh, hopefully he's not going to be on the throne. But imagine like I went onto that TV show and somehow I discovered that I was related to Joseph Stalin. Uh, I don't know, say he had a, a cousin from Dundee or something like that. Um, and you know, if I, if I was related to a genocidal dictator, I'm not sure I'd want that show to be aired. I, I don't want people to know that my ancestor is someone like that. Well, there's people on this list that make Stalin look positively tame. Verse 9, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. I'm just picking one example. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Do you know what Ahaz was like? You can read about him in 2 Kings 16. He was a greedy, cowardly, malevolent ruler. He was meant to be the king of God's people, but he worshipped other pagan gods. And even worse than that, he sacrificed his own children to these pagan gods by burning them alive. Now just think of that. Remember God's promise. Remember those, those promises of, of this fruitful nation to bless the world, of this great king who's going to save the world? Here we have someone in that line who's almost trying to eradicate it. And it's the king himself who seems to be the undoing of God's promise. I mean, there is not a period of time here in this list of names, except for a very brief moment during Solomon's reign, there is not a period of time where it seems like God's promises were going to stand at all. Imagine living when Israel were slaves to Egypt in that 400-year period. Imagine living then and and then telling your family that that God had made a promise to your ancestor Abraham that you would be a great nation to bless the world. Telling them that whilst children and the children of people they know around about them are being executed. Or imagine living during the exile and talking about God's promise to, to your friends, to your family of this king that would come when the last king that they had was an evil, wicked dictator who was eventually killed and the entire nation was leveled. You see, this list of names, what do we see here? We see a legacy of sin, rebellion, failure, and evil. And yet, through it all, there is one hand guiding it to bring it about to the moment in Bethlehem. Messy, messy to us. But to God, it's all part of the plan. Matthew's trying to show us that in his structure. 14, 14, 14. It was part of a plan. And this is often how God works. You see how long this took? I mean, this took 3,000 years to fulfill this promise. If that was me, that's not how I'd work. That's not how I would operate. And we can't understand God's way of working. We can't understand how how God works, and it's not the way we work. And yet, what we do see here is that God does work. I love that hymn we sung, you know that William Cooper hymn, just before uh, the last song, where he says, "Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessing on." and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You see, we have promises today from God, don't we? I mean, we live in the time of Jesus when those promises were fulfilled. What are our promises? God promises, if you come to Jesus now, He will forgive you of all sin. 
gone forever. God promises if you trust in Jesus, you'll be raised to new life and restored back to him for all eternity. God promises that Jesus will one day come back and get rid of all that is broken and distorted in this world and create a new creation. That's the promises we have. And yet being a Christian is not neat or tidy. It's messy and it's complicated. And there are times in life where there doesn't seem to be any rhyme nor reason. The church seems small and weak and it seems there's suffering everywhere and death. And for some of us, what we have gone through or what we are currently going through makes us question these promises. Does God really care about me? Why is he letting this happen? And we don't know. And God doesn't tell us. And it's frustrating. And it's confusing. And it's not the way we would have done it. But what he does tell us is that nothing will hinder that promise. Nothing. Even the darkest moments of life, even when you don't feel that he could be near, even when you just don't feel nothing but emptiness, his promise still stands. And how can you be sure? How can we be certain today? Because Jesus came. Against overwhelming odds. When at times when that promise seemed like it was on a knife's edge, or or times where it just seemed that it failed completely altogether, Jesus came in the face of evil tyrants and suffering people and in great darkness. Jesus came. Jesus is our King. Jesus is the certainty of those blessings that He gives. All history is centered around Him and about Him. So do you see, this is more than just a list of names. This is a list of God's tireless and relentless faithfulness to his promise. And although the stench of rebellion and sin permeates throughout this, there is something greater that leaps off the pages of these names. And it's God's grace. It's the second thing we see here in this genealogy. There is no one too far gone or too obscure for God's grace. God's grace drips off every name in this list. So as the Apostle Paul said, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And it's so appropriate because God's grace, His undeserved favor, His, His overwhelming mercy is fully embodied in God's King, the Lord Jesus. You see, Matthew does something that no one would really have done in a genealogy. He lists the name of women. In the patriarchal society of that time, genealogies, you only ever listed the names of men because the lineage was passed through men. But Matthew seems to think here, actually, no, it's important for me to mention women. And it's not just women in general, but it's these particular women. Verse 3, we have Tamar, the wife of Judah. Verse 5, Rahab. And also in verse 5, we've got Ruth. Verse 6, we see mention of the wife of Uriah. Her name was Bathsheba. And finally, in verse 16, we have Mary herself. See, it wasn't just gender that omitted you from a genealogy. See, a a genealogy was kind of like a resume. Uh, People looked to see if you came from good stock. I guess people still kind of do that today. Um, So you would only write the best. You you know, you wouldn't talk about uh, crazy Uncle Mick, who's like really embarrassing at weddings, but you would talk about that uncle who's got his own business. You want to show people you're from good stock. That's what a genealogy was like. Well, some of these people here 
Nobody would ever dreamed of having them on their genealogy back then. Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, they were both Gentiles. Probably doesn't mean much to us today, but it was a big deal to Jewish people back in that time. You would not mention your Gentile relatives. And Tamar and Rahab, it's a step further, they were, they were prostitutes. So do you see what we've got here? Gender outsiders, racial outsiders, moral outsiders. That's exactly why Matthew includes them in the genealogy. Because that is the people that God works through. That is the people that God wants to bring in the outsider, the obscure, the small, the weak. That is who Jesus is descended from. And that is who, exactly who he's come to save. That lady mentioned in uh, verse 5, Ruth. She lost her husband and her two children. And to make, make matters worse, she had to look after a very bitter mother-in-law who followed her around. Well, she looked after her. They lived in poverty. She was a racial outsider in Israel at the time. And she used to go around in the fields and pick up the leftover grain to try and feed both her and her mother-in-law. In the grand scheme of human history, of the universe, who was she? She's a nobody. But not to God, not to Jesus, because she was faithful to him. And through her faithfulness, she has been brought into the genealogy of the King of Kings. And that, of course, is the offer to all people. So if you do feel marginalized or on the periphery or, or wondering, does, does God even care about me? What we see in this list of names is that, yes, he does. The king of kings wants to know you. He wants you to be part of his family. Smallness and obscurity. That's how he himself was, was brought into the world. See, what this genealogy is recording for us the, the rise and the fall of Israel's kingdoms. And where's the royal bloodline of God's great king of kings when it at last comes to fruition? It's in a carpenter and an expectant wife in Bethlehem in a manger at the back of a cave. That's where God promises lie. God loves the outsiders. He loves them. He loves all people. That's why there's all kinds of people on this list. Kings and peasants, male and female, Jew and Gentile, insider, outsider, moral, immoral. Jesus is for them all because Jesus is the Savior of them all. And when you come to him, he does not turn you away. That's another great promise we have in the Bible. When you come to Jesus and trust in him, he promises he will not let you go. He is not ashamed of you. No matter what you have done, forgives all sin. As Hebrews chapter 2 says, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And no matter how beat down by your sin you feel. Look again at verse 6. Why does Matthew phrase verse 6 the way he does? He makes reference to Uriah's wife so that the reader who's reading this genealogy will remember that David, that great and horrible sin that David committed. I mean, if there's one guy you want on your resume as a first century Jew, it's King David. But Matthew talks about the wife of Uriah so that people remember that even the great King David did the most despicable things. See, the best of us are nothing but sinners in need of a Savior. And God does not treat sin lightly. It cost him the life of his son, Jesus. He does not treat it lightly, but know this, he is not paralyzed by your sin. So don't stew in a state of unrepentance. Don't become stale with self-loathing 
or self-pity, but take it to the king. That's why he came, to save us from these sins. And he is not ashamed to bring us into his family. See, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where you're from, what, what stock you come from, but it matters where you're going. And the King of Kings has died so that we can be part of his eternal kingdom. That's the honor of being a Christian. And that's the promise that we have in Christ. Well, there you go. All that from a genealogy. Uh, It's more than a genealogy, isn't it? It's a testimony to the overwhelming faithfulness of God. All that we we read of in this, this first chunk of our Bibles. A testimony to his faithfulness. A testimony to his radical grace that brought in people that everyone else despised and brought them in to be part of his family. This radical grace that saves even the worst sinners. What privilege it is to be part of that. You are part of that if you trust Jesus. You are part of Christ's family. This is what the history of the world is all about. Don't be mistaken by the messiness of life. It is messy. There is one king who rules over it all. At the end of the day, our lives are nothing but a breath. And he is the king of kings and eternal. And if you are not on his side, there is no security, only uncertainty. There is no promise of salvation, but there is a promise of judgment. But what we see here is that God's grace is for you, for all, calling us to be on the right side of the promise. Jesus Christ has come, the King of all, to bless all the nations. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that great legacy of faithfulness, that legacy of grace and mercy. As we read through those generations from Abraham all the way through down to the Christ, we see how you are so faithful how you have been so kind and how you have been so gracious. And Lord, to us and to the people who lived in those times, undoubtedly it just didn't look like those promises were going to come to anything. And yet they did. The Savior came and he died for our sins. And now we have the promise of eternal life with him. Father, help us to hold on to that when times are difficult. There are times where we just won't feel that. There are times where we'll just be thinking, how how on earth can anything good come out of this? We don't know. But help us to trust you, to look at the Scriptures and to see uh, thousands of years of faithfulness and to know that you can be trusted and to know that Jesus, the great King of all, has, has removed our sin forever and we will be with him forever. Thank you for the blessing that we have in Jesus. Lord, may that motivate us to tell others to bless the nations with this great King, in whose name we pray. Amen.